if you're thinking of something that even if other tools can do it, and even if there's a way to use AI to do it, it's still valuable to go release the feature if it's genuinely easier or does it better. Welcome to the Hyper Engage podcast. We are so happy to have you along our journey. Here, we uncover bits of knowledge from some of the greatest minds in tech. We unearth the hows, whys, and whats that drive the tech of today. Welcome to the movement. Hello, welcome to the Hyper Engage podcast, our first episode of 2024. Whoop, whoop. Thank you so much for joining us. I have a beautiful guest here, but before I introduce him, I'm here with my co-host Adil, and my name is Taylor, and we're going to walk you through Lewis's journey. It's very exciting and definitely different than some of the other guests we've had on. Lewis, he's the host of the Lewis and Kyle podcast with over 150 episodes, correct me if I'm wrong, Lewis, and counting, still going to this day, which is an amazing feat that you're still trugging along in, in this journey. And you also have a few companies, which we'll definitely dive into. So we really appreciate you. And thank you so much for joining us, Lewis. Yeah. Thank you both. I'm excited to be here. So I got to get into it. I got to ask, I got to get into this. What is your why for starting the podcast and how has it shaped your journey thus far? The why for starting the podcast specifically, I'd say came after a couple of entrepreneurial failures not in a massive sense, but they certainly weren't successes. And basically, I had tried several projects over many years. And with Kyle, we had done a few projects together and basically had realized that our projects failed because they weren't particularly good ideas. We just wanted to start a business because we wanted to start a business, not because we actually had an idea worth starting a business around. So then we kind of reframed it as what should we do with ourselves? Let's not start another business just for the sake of starting another business. Let's wait until we actually have a proper premise of a business to start, and let's busy ourselves productively until then. So we were both in college. I was a junior and he was a sophomore, and we had kind of for a couple of years entertained the idea of a podcast. It kind of came into clarity, obviously, with the pandemic timing as like an easy starting trigger. And we had been a part of a mastermind group that Kyle had created, where we did in-person dinners with a few of our friends and brought in one kind of outside guest from the community who was like older and established and successful. And so we wanted to carry out and continue that tradition remotely. And we just kind of said, we're not going to coordinate this for a six person group. It's just going to be me and Kyle and a guest. And that is kind of the inception of the podcast, at least the short story. That's incredible. I mean, often when you have some setbacks and failures in your journey, you, that can be the end for so many people. And they could just go back into that, you know, what everyone else is doing the nine to five and really never live out their dreams. So it's really incredible that you were able to not only reframe your perspective on those setbacks, but also take those lessons and try to understand like, how can it teach you and how can it chart your journey forward. So can you talk a little bit about then starting the podcast and then what you learned through the podcast to then create the companies that you built and then touch on those a bit? Definitely. The second question is a bit more challenging because I'm coming up on four years for having done the podcast. And Holy a lot- shit. Time yeah. out. That's a big moment. That is a huge moment. Like uh, kudos to you for even being that consistent and sticking to it because so many people just quit after the first or second, you know, episode before you or answer this question. And I got another question for you um, after this. Definitely. So starting it specifically, 
was fairly straightforward, right? Because they started it in 2020, which means I had internet access and Google was a nice established product that existed at the time. So it still exists for the record. Uh, Google has not been obliterated by AI quite yet uh, in January uh, of 2024. Yeah. If someone's listening to this in the future, I'm like Google, I remember hearing yeah, about Google. that. Um, so basically we just kind of did a very basic Google and we're like, how do we start a podcast? And I don't totally know what things we had done wrong, painfully wrong in the months leading up to it to put us in the frame of mind of like, let's not make optimal decisions and let's just get started in a really messy way. But fortunately that was our attitude. So, you know, every, I used to analyze decisions that didn't matter and I still do. I just used to do it much more frequently than I currently do, such as best microphone, best production software, best hosting software, best editing software. And I basically was like, look, if it's on this blog post of the top 10, it's one of the, be the best ones. So it's good enough. And same thing with like every other decision that needed to be made to get started. And we also, I think we had, a, I think a, I'm not totally sure if we had a specific set date for the goal, but I feel like it was one of those things where we started and we're like, if this takes us more than like a week or two to start, we're doing something wrong. Basically just like, what's the like quick and dirty, how do we just get a podcast out the door and made the decision. So basically Google first tutorial, first set of things that sounded like they checked the boxes. Uh, there was a book by Barry Schwartz, The Paradox of Choice. It's kind of like going into decisions with a framework of like, before you go out and do the research, you write it out. What is it that I'm looking for? What are the boxes I need to check? Then when you find the first thing that checks those boxes, you're just like, good enough, right? I said, this is what I needed. This is that. I'm not going to keep looking. So that was very much our, like kind of a greedy algorithm, if you will, like from a computer science perspective, a very greedy selection criteria for how we get started. And we just did that and got started. You first, I'd say five guests were from our personal network. So family, friends who run businesses, friends of ours who started, you know, small on-campus startups at our school. And then within the first 25 episodes, we were reaching out to just random people from Twitter, people who had a blog that we found interesting. And then everything kind of snowballed from there from having the credibility of having had 25 episodes and then nice serendipities falling into our lap. That was the early stages. As far as what I've learned each year kind of represents a very different set of goals and priorities and stage in life. Like when I said, uh, I first started it when I was a junior in college. So originally it was very much a means of discovery. It was like, what business models are out there and what does the life look like for the people who've pursued this business model? Like, did their life seem really painful and awful and, and did their path to like making it seem like something I would be willing to endure? And does it seem like a match for my skill sets and my weaknesses or not? And ironically, I, so I was studying computer science in school. So I kind of thought the type of business that makes sense for me to start is a large software company. And then I interviewed a lot of SaaS founders and I was like, all of these guys, for the most part, seem miserable. Um, and, you know, there's a selection bias if I only interviewed the miserable ones, I suppose. And not miserable, but the ones that are like, this journey was really hard and really painful. Then a lot of other people who did more like the agency model, like B2B services, they're like, yeah, I just like found some businesses that want my stuff and I just sold it to them and then we just build it up. And I was like, that seems like they were happy along the way. So it's kind of a means of discovery of like what's out there and what seems appealing based on who I can relate to. And then in the later years, um, I can get into like specific lessons, but I know I've been speaking for a few minutes, but at one point I decided, you know, I still didn't have an idea of what business to start. Even after several interviews, even after let's say like 70, I wasn't totally clear on what to do. And I had graduated by that point. So I kind of decided yet again, I don't, I still don't have a business to start. Same problem I had when I started the podcast and I still don't want to just do something for the sake of doing it. Uh, Cause I know that's not going to work out. Cause I've listened to enough people who just try to do that. And the path sounded painful and like something I wanted to avoid. So it's like, I'm just going to get a job and do stuff. In an industry I'm excited about, learning skills I'm excited to learn, 
And then at some point I'll be in a better position yet again. It's, it's the same exact spot as it was when I started the podcast. What is a useful thing to do with myself because I don't actually know what to do that I want to do in a way that's not set up myself up for failure. So I decided I wanted to work in the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency industry. So at that point, the podcast was just a way to like immediately download a lot of information and important relationships by networking with cool people. And then it was helpful in getting a couple jobs in that industry. And then eventually my co-founder for my current kind of set of businesses had reached out to me and wanted me to join those businesses with him. And so I did, I left those jobs to start the business with him. And then from then until now, so I'd say from October, September of 2022 till about present day, the podcast has really been a vehicle for me to say, what am I personally bottlenecked by? And like, why is my business not growing? What skill set do I not have? What people do I not know? And where can I use the podcast to meet those people and learn those things to continue to unblock whatever it is, is preventing the business from growing. I really, thank you so much for, for those insights. And I love that the uh, one fact that you mentioned earlier, it's where do you place your focus and attention, right? It's it's finite. So if you're so focused on the shit that doesn't matter, you're going to keep in that loop of doing shit that doesn't matter until you realize, like, just like you mentioned, those what are those checkboxes? What are the few things that you need to, to know or the goals that you have going into that research or going into a specific project that you're looking to get out of that instance so that you already know once these boxes are checked, that's it, move on to the next thing and not get caught in that loop of the continuous. I mean, we've all been there, you know, just the continuous nothingness. It's you're back mm -hmm. at the same square you were. And I love too that, you know, you had a different outlook on the podcast. The podcast served a purpose initially, and then that purpose transformed over time. And you didn't really see the podcast that many people start podcasting for, you know, PR and all that stuff. It was really like what it sounds like. It's more for inner development and inner work and understanding where you are personally and professionally, and then understanding how you can align both with yourself internally and your values with your overall goals and what you're really trying to achieve, which is an amazing, it's just an amazing perspective because, you know, you see the herd of people that go to start a blog or a podcast and it's very similar and the story is the same. And I feel like that's why they're not able to stand out because you just, you're doing the same shit everyone else is doing. What do you expect? This, you know, a different result, which is really powerful. So can you dive a little bit into those businesses with this partner and kind of who the, what the businesses are and who they serve and who your ICP is and what you're thinking around those are? Yeah. So I have three main projects at present outside of the podcast. And in many ways, they're very complimentary. So Orbit Metrics was the business that my business partner had started and reached, I'd say, a sustainable level of this is worth pursuing before I ever got involved. So he really took that from zero to one without me there whatsoever. And he actually did that part-time um, while he was still working at another job. So on the side, he got that to a zero to one stage and basically to a point where he was making decent money, but not something he wanted to quit his job to, to do. And because he did a really good job doing software engineering. And basically that business, the core premise was that a lot of businesses that put through a lot of digital ad spend. So like, I don't know what a lot means to different people, but let's say a minimum of like $50,000 a month in digital advertising. Obviously for some people that's like, I spend $50,000 a day. And some people are like, that's our yearly ad spend or like our whatever. But at that amount, basically a small optimization brings in a significant return. And especially if you're spending that money across campaigns kind of omni-channel, omni doesn't have to mean every single channel, but like a lot of them, then it's 
pretty guaranteed that you're not analyzing. There's, you're not, you're leaving money on the table. Like you're not optimizing everything that could be optimized. And a lot of the reason for that is the aggregation of that data is very time consuming and annoying and just like, you're just not going to do it. And it requires a certain skill set you may not have or no one from your team has. And there's software that's, there's a high, it's a difficult thing to do uh, most of the time. Sometimes there are some off the shelf tools that if you're in a very narrow industry in a set use case, it's like all e-commerce brands, for example, use the same, the same marketing mix. So there's some analytics tools that are like custom fit to a common set marketing mix formula. But for most businesses, they do custom stuff because like every business is kind of messy behind the scenes. And what we do is we help those businesses aggregate and make sense of their BI. So their business intelligence, put all of that into a data warehouse. A lot of people start out right with like Zapier and spreadsheets. That's great until it isn't. And then when it's not, it really isn't right. Google sheets, not designed to have more than a hundred thousand rows in it. And when you start to have a million rows, your computer gets really slow. And then you have even more aversion to looking at your data. And then you continue to not make good decisions. So the point of that business, I'm really getting into the problem statement here, is we help people clean up their analytics and build reports that are fully automated and give them the level of insight into what they want to have a level of insight into, refresh daily across right all campaigns, all platforms, et cetera. Not like literally every single number inside of the business, typically related to you know transaction data, so purchases or sales, and then anything related to marketing. So your socials, your paid, your email, et cetera. So that's Orbit Metrics. That's primarily serving... A lot of agencies will be kind of their go-to fractional chief data officer is what we'll call the role and help them manage the analytics across all of their clients. And then for some brands or businesses that do a lot of advertising themselves, uh, we'll just you know be a fractional data officer for the brand directly. And then the second business is called Inbox Ghosts. And this one's, I'd say in many ways, still being incubated. I'm very pleased with what we're delivering to our clients, but we're just coming out of our initial kind of beta cohort of we had a hypothesis and we wanted to get customers quickly. So we offered at a fairly low price, a straightforward service, which is we will produce a weekly newsletter for your business. Hypothesis there being, right, there's no reason you shouldn't be reminding people that you exist at least once a week in some capacity. You don't have to remind everyone, but people who are in your potential buyers category might be a good idea to remind them that you exist at a regular interval. It's the same one of those things as the other business where it's important, but it's probably not important enough uh, for a certain size of business to hire a full-time person for that, right? So an analyst, to, someone to do what we do at Orbit Metrics would require probably like an analyst skill set, which is going to cost any business, including like if they're bringing them on full-time and have to do healthcare and benefits and the whole thing, like six to $10,000 a month, probably even more. Uh, and then for maybe like a junior level marketing person, probably like at least 4,000 a month, probably more than that if they're coming in full-time in-house. And so with these businesses, it's basically, it's something that's important, but at the certain size of business, not important enough for you to bring on a full-time person. So it gets neglected unless you bring on like a specialist service provider like ourselves. So that's what Inbox Ghost does. It's a done for you weekly newsletter. And then I just, I, I want to dive a little bit into Orbit Metrics a bit and really interested for the audience that might not know and myself too, I'm not really, I know that the fractional aspect of, you know, is becoming more of a thing, especially in the economy we're in, because, you know, you have to do more with less and all this. Um, but can you kind of dive into what it means to be a fractional chief data officer and why a company would need one? And then at what specific stage should you be looking at, you know, to onboard this fractional chief data officer? Yeah, I mean, our goal of calling it a C-suite level position rather than saying like, we're a part-time analyst for hire, right? A lot of that is framing. Mm -hmm. But the goal is that if you're hiring a C-level person, 
you're basically saying that that thing is something I'm not worrying about because I hired someone who's good at it, who's worrying about it for me and not worrying about it because they're good, but taking care of it versus, you know, a part-time analyst kind of sounds like you're hiring another employee except they're part-time and you still have to manage them versus like, you know, a, a C-suite level position is going to come in and kind of set the strategy and like, be like, even if you don't know what you want, I know what you should want because I've seen this problem before. And this is what, you know, let's say it's an e-commerce brand, right? Like they have a store on Shopify. They do your standard playbook of like Facebook, Instagram, those types of things. We'll be like, okay, we've worked with several of these brands. We've built dashboards for, I don't know how many of these companies, dozens. And if the CEO is not like kind of, let's, I don't want to say clueless, but like they're not a numbers person. Maybe they're like an, the artsy type who just like came up with the product and then accidentally has an econ brand, which happens frequently, right? They're good at social media. They have an idea. They're good at selling a thing. They're like, oh my goodness, there's a lot happening here. I'm just like an artist. How did this happen? Like that type of person might want someone to come in and be like, look, like these are the numbers you want to pay attention to. This is how you pay attention to them. And this is how you can make decisions based off of them. So that's kind of the like, and then also like, they might have heard like a couple of things before they're like, well, what's this triple whale thing? And what's the difference between Amazon and Google cloud? And does that even matter? Like those types of strategic decisions, like kind of like a data governance strategy, that's also not something that they're going to want to like benefit from learning from. It's more like, I, I trust you. And then ideally the results that follow are like mm -hmm. data driven decisions that lead to better outcomes. Mm. Very interesting. We, we get to speak with a lot of tech companies that are hiring professional services uh, for these kind of uh, these kind of uh, data integrations and uh, you know analytics and configuring uh, you know data warehouses and making sure that all the data points are not only unified but they are speaking uh, you know they are driving action. So if if just talking about the tech business because a lot of them they are listening uh, to this episode and we have most of the you know businesses starting from C to series B in the first three years, pre-product market fit sitting in there. Uh, of course, in, in, in North America, it's not uh, economical to hire, uh, you know, teams in-house. So they, they, they always prefer to have third-party vendors that are uh, doing it as a service, just like you mentioned, uh, done for you, uh, you know, CDO kind of services, these kinds. So I would, I would really appreciate if you could, uh, you know, tailor it more towards the tech businesses, from uh, from from the advertising data, we have so many platforms doing that too. Like one of them is Metadata. One of my, you know, our, our friends as well, uh, Gil. He's 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 the founder of uh, Metadata. They're helping B two B marketing teams uh, build reporting dashboards and you know you know optimizing optimize their campaign, automating their campaigns for media buying and all. So when it comes to data points and uh, you know data configurations that are impacting directly to the revenue, how do you think uh, you know it 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 entails uh, when it comes to SaaS businesses and you know how does it best fits in, into the SaaS businesses? You can you can come you know you can share one of your case studies or maybe one of the stories from uh, from 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 core subscription based businesses. Sure, I do want to temper what I'm saying. Uh, primarily I am the business development guy in these businesses. I am usually the face mm -hmm. of sales and marketing. I'm the guy on podcasts that my business partner, Sean, we kind of lovingly refer to him as the man in the chair, right? The guy mm -hmm. doing the data and overseeing the data projects and mm -hmm. being like the high level strategy. So I, as like a proper sales and marketing person, um, understand mm -hmm. things enough to mm -hmm. get someone in the conversation, do that sales discovery call, assess if like 
what they're doing is sophisticated. And I'm like, actually, yeah, we really want to make things better. You kind of, you got this like good job. Or if I'm like, Hey guys, like you should probably meet with my guy and like, let him tell you like, really like mm-hmm. you got nothing here and you should have something mm-hmm. here. Cause all of this flow of data, um, there's decisions you should be making. So in ter- I'm not the guy who like jumps in and makes that strategy assessment more like that pre-qualification typically in like our sales cycle. Mm-hmm. So don't want to speak out of depth in terms of my expertise for mm-hmm. a, like what specifically I can speak like high level, right? It's like, you know, every business ultimately is governed by only a few key metrics, but in terms of the category broadly, and most of our businesses that we deal with are not venture backed. So they have a different mm-hmm. set of decision-making. So I know for a venture backed company, right? There's certain metrics that you're trying to monitor because of how those are going to look for investors. And like, you have other considerations that a lot of our other companies are like, they're established and they're just like, where are we wasting money? How can we do better? And that's kind of the entirety of the conversation. So I don't want to prescribe information where I'm not totally the expert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that 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 makes complete sense. Like, but definitely it it matters a lot for for a SaaS business in the early stage to invest into data and have the right people, right team with the right skill set in place to 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 do the things in the right way. Because yeah, all these companies, you you take an example of Gong when we spoke to the uh to the you know C suite at Gong back in the years and they said early in the days they invested in data and that's now it's yielding. Uh even when they're like more than a thousand people on the team, they're they have the same approach. They are making sure that their data is in the right places and it is driving to see and for all the organization like customer success support, sales product uh product teams and all so yeah. also this is uh, pretty interesting when it comes to you know uh engagements when it comes to making uh intelligent uh optimizations when it comes to content marketing uh on a very high level you mentioned newsletters so how do you think that you know that can create an impact a lot of these newsletters that we get to uh, receive every single day but these tech companies that come show up on our uh, you know on our stage you know they have this strategic part in it like they have call to actions they have like you know some value prop all of that they're, they're, they're trying but again when it comes to uh time to value when it comes to uh actual return in terms of conversions uh which is which is something that i, I read about you guys uh doing pretty good as a service so could you touch us more on on how you're making an impact for for you know doing you know newsletter as a service for, yeah, for we're still Mm-hmm. You said SaaS, specifically for uh, SaaS companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we only have one, like, like I said, we're still incubating this. So we're actually just coming out of beta, and it's kind of a, it's not beta from a technical perspective. It's beta from like a service perspective, mm-hmm. which is basically like mm-hmm. we're confident enough about being organized and buttoned up enough, where like the onboarding is going to be seamless and the delivery is going to be perfectly just all of the details that like you don't want to take someone on with the wrong expectations. Basically, mm-hmm. the beta was like a way for us to frame with our early customers. It's like, we're going to make a couple mistakes that you would not expect a business that is not in beta to make. And so as long as you're cool mm-hmm. with that and want the service badly enough where you have that expectation set out from the outset, uh, it's kind of having permission to have a couple of small fumbles, right? Not missing anything crazy. Like we told you we'll have a newsletter in your ESP on Tuesday that you can do a quick glance of review on and then send out that day. Then like, we're not making those levels of errors, but in terms of like the mm-hmm. onboarding call and just, oh, I forgot to ask you a question during onboarding to understand this preference that you have. And now that's added to our SOP such that we ask everyone forever. Just basically, there's going to be a lot of back and forth to get things right when ideally there's only one interaction. It's like, here's the onboarding form. It is fully comprehensive. 
and there's no, mm-hmm. nothing missed. It's kind of like those things haven't been established yet is what we wanted to communicate. So we're still building our first proper case study of like, so for mm-hmm. example, like the analytics, I think there are some in terms of conversions, right? That's probably something that's not fully been added into our process is some sort of like analytics intervention, analytics setup at the outset. So we can report mm-hmm. on those conversions because none of the businesses that we've, some of the new businesses are still like prototyping the newsletter. So they've had like a bit more back and forth over the content and the feel uh, in terms of what it is mm-hmm. that they want. And so for them, it's not yet in that stage where we've launched the newsletter. For The ones that we've launched have been for B2B services, so agencies specifically, that have mm-hmm. a high-touch sales process. So somewhere where you know they get on the sales call and there's going to be a, how did you find us? Like, how did you find my calendar? Like, why are we here? And that's going to be like a very traditional, you know, mm-hmm. I call it like web 2.0, like in the sense of like, there's no tracking codes it's just like you have a conversation like yeah read your emails and then like okay this mm-hmm. guy came for the newsletter for SaaS, i mean you, those things will be easy to add in terms of like setting up the parameters in google analytics and tracing people back to either their first session source or those different ways of attributing someone but our ethos with the newsletters is that a lot of people only send emails when they have a sales message and mm. that's kind of the paradigm we're trying to break we're not saying don't send those emails but if people are, if there's no reason to open your email besides look at this product update or like look at the sale or something else that's like why you should buy our product, we're building more brand heavy emails, more top of funnel emails that are just like we're experts at XYZ. So let's say like you're, you know, a marketing agency for kind of like indie films or something, like some random niche like that. Then, or even like, it doesn't have to be a marketing agency. Let's just say you the, the you could have a software that helps indie film creators do X, Y, and Z or something. Some like arbitrary niche like that. So a traditional person would basically put out an email that's just like case study, how we just did this amazing thing. Case study, how we just did this amazing thing. Versus what we do in our emails is do more of like an industry report. So it's just like a truly valuable mm. email that's just like, here's a bunch of interesting things that happened in the indie film industry this week, right? This just happened, this just happened. So it positions the company as an authority and as an expert on that subject matter. It's something people are going to enjoy reading, whether or not they have any plans to buy from you at any point in the future. And then just very lightly in the header and footer of the email, you just have a very basic thing that's like, by the way, if you happen to need whatever this indie film SaaS does, right, book a call. But the purpose of sending the email is not to get people to book a call. It's just like, here's a really interesting recap of our industry this week, or maybe a deep, it's just purely valuable content that someone yeah. in that industry would want. And so it's a reason yes. that someone who has no intention or no reason to buy from you yet would still get on your list. And then mm-hmm. if they are ever in the kind of right sales stage where they suddenly are in the market for that service, you are top of mind. And so at the price that we offer the service, which is currently low hundreds of dollars per month, so it's not very expensive. It's a very mm-hmm. easy, a very small amount of conversions would justify building something like this and just building awareness at this scale. Hmm. Absolutely. And one thing that matters also matters a lot is you mentioned the viable data and viable information, authoritative data that makes sense. And, uh, you know, it's not too much into, you know, driving sales or, you know, driving attention is is about getting uh, contributions from people. Just like we having uh, this conversation, like we had more than 100 conversations and people came up, shared their success metrics, their wins, their stats, their growth metrics, all of that. And this is something that nobody can take this away from us. You know, this is real data, viable, authoritative data. And this is, if, if we are able to kick this and get it across, 
uh, our community and make it more sort of a community-led approach, which everybody is heading in the year 2024. Because uh, like you mentioned, uh, with, with, with this evolution of AI, like especially in the content size, like, you know, language models and all, everybody's you know, outreaching and, you know, sending long, boring emails and people are getting pretty much tired of it. And people now need more data that has, you know, concrete stats, industry uh, trends, all of this, uh, you know, to make sure, uh, you know, they get the best value out of that time they spend while, while consuming that content. So that makes sense. Yeah. And I think too, to just piggyback off of that, we, we forget that we're humans and that, you know, everything starts with a relationship and the transactional sales methodology of just like, just like you mentioned, Lewis, sending an email just for a sales purpose, it's not going to work anymore. And we have to create things with the intention of building a relationship first. And I love that approach with um, the inbox ghost that you're, that you're taking and I think, you know, a relationship first approach is the way and it's going to be the way and it always has been for more long term sustainable things, but it'll be more evident, uh, especially as we move into 2024. So just one last question. I'm really interested on your predictions or like any thoughts you have for the creator or like SaaS trends of 2024. That's very interesting. I think that or creator trends. I think with SaaS trends, what's still durable, right? There's this is like one of the more cliche SaaS things to say about you know SaaS is always teetering between bundling and unbundling, <laughs> and the OpenAI right is particularly good. Let me back up a second. OpenAI is not necessarily particularly good at anything, and it's like a lot of people buy. There's a lot of SaaS programs where you could achieve the same outcome with a spreadsheet. Right, with just a well-programmed spreadsheet. But the reason that those software companies are still successful, it's, it's understanding the components of value. And there's different things that are valuable. One of those things that's valuable is not just if you can achieve something, but if you can achieve something with zero thought. So people are like, well, I can do this with ChatGPT because look at this crazy five prompts I string together and then it gets it right. It's like, that's cool, but like you're just, no one else is going to do that. It's like, if you can release the thing that just does the simple thing extremely well and people don't have to think about it, that still is a layer of value on top of it, right? So just because a, people are forgetting the fundamentals and, and people, I forget, there's probably lots of fundamentals I forget about too. It's just a very human thing to like forget the fundamentals and not think critically from like a very basic level. But when you think about why do people purchase anything, it's like there's only a couple of ingredients, right? Like speed, convenience, et cetera, simplicity, not having to think about something. Like anytime a, a smart founder, like a genius founder hires employees, it's not because like, we don't think we write emails that these founders couldn't write, right? It's like, you're the guy who started the indie film company. You know more about it than I do. Of course, you'd write a better email than I would, but you probably shouldn't because you should be running your company and just let us do that. And I think that's the point with software. It's like, if you're thinking of something that even if other tools can do it, and even if there's a way to use AI to do it, it's still valuable to go release the feature if it's genuinely easier or does it better. And I so I think a lot of people are very nihilistic or defeated about software going into this year because it's like chat gpt can literally do everything if you're creative enough but that's not to say there's not an opportunity to make a simpler interface where someone just has to press a single button that does the thing rather than like wrestle with like a very stochastic system so that is my prediction is like there's still opportunity if you like don't get doom for like freaked out by ai because that's 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 what i would say yeah it's, and, and I... what about one question, what about all these uh, 
all these big tech companies, I would say the category leaders like in CRM, Salesforce, marketing side, HubSpot, you know, they're 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 building things on top of OpenAI, GPT-4, the language models, and they are trying to augment their existing databases and making it more efficient. And of course, at the end of the day, it's all about uh, delivering value faster, you know, for their customers. And a lot of these platforms that we get to speak with, you know, Y Combinator back, you will see a ton of platforms getting uh, getting funded in the first six months just because they have AI powered, uh, you know, technology and all of that. So what about that? Can I have your notion on this? Yeah, I think, you know, AI, I, I have a, like a bit of a pet peeve with, with certain words. It's like, right, people like the internet, right? Like back in 20 years ago, people were saying they're funding internet startups and then now, what year is it? It's 2024. So like 2021, 2022, or not, like 2020, 2021, they're like funding crypto startups. It's like, what is crypto? Like, it's basically saying like funding software startups. It's like, what is software? Software is literally everything. AI is literally everything. The internet is literally everything. And I think some people just during hype cycles take a longer time to realize that. So now if you like said, I'm a, a VC who invests in companies that use software. It's like, okay, so you're a VC that invests in literally anything. Cause it's like, what company exists that doesn't have software somewhere in their value chain. So I think that hopefully, you know, I, honestly, I think we have another year where people like don't make that. Um, I think a lot of people are still mm -hmm. gonna fall for the trap of like thinking AI is a unique identifier. And it's like mm -hmm. anyone who runs a business, it's like anyone who runs a bit, it's where a business that uses cell phones to like communicate with each other. It's like, great. That's mm -hmm. how people communicate with each other in this day and age. I think people eventually like, realize that's not unique. It's an ex it's an expected thing. You're not differentiated by doing the thing. It's like everyone in our company drinks water and has to eat food to stay alive. It's like, yeah, and use AI. It's like, it's kind of just, mm -hmm. that's what people do now. And you have mm -hmm. to have, it, it's back to fundamentals. It's like, that's cool. It's, it's about falling for the, ma the mechanism versus understanding what the company actually delivers. So there's the hype cycle and the venture money probably only has so much longer hopefully not that much, or maybe hopefully longer so that people who like see it pass to the yes can have a nice little win <laughs> for a while. But basically that will wear off because they're not investing in an actual premise of like, you've identified a like a well-defined problem that you're uniquely positioned to solve very well. It's you just like, you're using something cool and maybe something cool will happen. And that thesis never lasts particularly. I mean, people get lucky, right? There's an outsized wins, outsized wins. But like, if you don't have the outsized, I, I'd venture that, most of those wins aren't going to pan out unless they happen to stumble into a well-defined problem that they're well-positioned to solve. Yeah, no, absolutely. 100%. Riding the wave is just not enough. Exactly. Never. There is no wave. It's just like, or the wave already <laughs> passed. Like yeah. if, if the technology was expensive or difficult to use still, that'd be one thing. But now there's genuinely no barriers to using it. And there's no learning mm -hmm. curve to using it, in my opinion. Essentially. Absolutely. Well, Lewis... We thank you so very much for joining us and for sharing all of your insights and your experience. And yeah, we wish you the very best of 2024. And we're so excited to keep following your journey and see where this year takes you. So thank you. Thank you again from all of us here at Hyper Engage for joining us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much for bringing this uh, infectious energy and this uh, gentility into the conversation, concrete and opinionated. Thank you. Thank you very much, Luis. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you so very much for staying with us on the episode. Please share your feedback at adil at hyperengage.io. We definitely need it. 
Uh, we will see you next time with another guest on the stage with some concrete tips on how to operate better as a customer success leader and how you can empower engagements with some building some meaningful relationships. We qualify people for the episode just to make sure we bring the value to the listeners. Do reach us out if you want to refer any CS leader. Until next time, goodbye and have a good rest of your day.